coming up on today's show. Joe is back from Tampa, and I'm on my deathbed. Joe, if I die, please don't let Nate Burleson replace me. Hawk being dramatic again and looking for attention because he is now the other woman. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't let a little case of bird flu take down the king of all digital media. Wide receivers for MVP, Beast Mode's going back to Seattle, and I'm ready to go back to bed. All this and much, much more on another American Medical Association award-winning edition of The Tomahawk Show. Joe and Hawk, it's Beef Brewski again from Minnesota. I just witnessed that tragic game today against the Ravens, and I want to say you're more than welcome to jump on the Vikings bandwagon because first, we're going to beat Green Bay, and then we're going to go beat Chicago, and then we're going to go win some championship games. And then we're going to win the Super Bowl. We're going to go all the way to the White House. Yeah! And you can go skull like yourself. And Joe Hawk yourself, too. You know what, guys? I just got left at the laundromat by the Browns today. What a disgrace. Freddie Kitchens is trying to be a cucumber scientist. And he just keeps putting himself in a pickle. This is Mike and Alan from Youngstown. Season ticket members for a full... Two straight seasons. We got them after one and fifteen. We had belief, but this is the most frustrating thing I've ever been through. And you know what? Go hawk yourself. But we'll be back next season. Love you. Welcome, 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 welcome to the Tomahawk Show. I am your humble co-host, Joe Thomas, and I know you're used to hearing the great deep baritone bass voice of Andrew Hawkins right here at the top, but. I'm actually sitting in the host seat here today because our man, Andrew Hawkins, unfortunately, he's been stricken with the worst combination of Ebola, flu, cold that you could possibly yeah. imagine on the face of the earth. And he will be reporting live from his hospital bed in the ER. Mr. Hawkins, I got to bring you in. Can you confirm yeah. that you were recording this great episode of the Tomahawk Show live from your hotel room ER bed? Yeah, I just convinced my family not to pull the plug. Um, I am in my hospital bed. I have felt the worst pain that I've felt in a very long time. I'm not even, I mean, I don't think football doing, I've broken limbs, separated shoulders, cracked ribs, concussions. I don't know if any of that pain comes close to competing with what I've been feeling for the last three or four days. Um, the doctor told me it was the flu and I'm like, this can't be the normal flu. What small tribe did this knock out and somehow got reincarnated in me? Um, but he was like, no, it's like the run-of-the-mill flu. It's been going around. So I'm sitting here in the hospital drinking uh, water. I'm not really in a hospital. I'm actually at the uninterrupted offices contaminating all the stuff while they're on Christmas <laughs> break. Um, I'm sipping water and honey, literal honey. I warmed up honey to try to get through this episode. There was too much good shit to talk about for me to sit this one out. So this is me not calling off of work, reporting to work to do my damn job, like Bill Belichick oh, would say. Oh, wow. That's a bold take because you actually did call off from yesterday's pod. Usually we're recording yeah. on Sunday night and we pushed her back 24 hours to hopefully give Hawk a little bit of time to recover from the bird flu that uh, struck and killed all of Asia and uh, yeah. it was doing its best to incite a riot here on the west coast in the uninterrupted office but um i think we can do our best we can get through this and we can dominate the greatest tomahawk show in history you know what 
Uh, it's not always about, I don't even know what I'm talking about. All right, next thing we're talking about, Joe, go. All right, well, hey, if you want to interact <laughs> with our show, make sure that you hit us up on Reddit, Twitter, Instagram, at Tomahawk Show. Join the Facebook group, Tomaflock, or you can call the voicemail line and annoy us by leaving us a message at 440-628-1376. Of course, we always have a uninterrupted YouTube show, except for when Hawk is in the hospital, because there's lots of HIPAA violations that you got to watch out for. So <laughs> check us out next Sunday for the great YouTube show. But anyways, I think it's time for a holiday edition of Tama Headlines. <laughs> No, no, no. Hold on. Before we get to Tama headlines, I'm not going to let you just skip over the fact. Because let me let me paint a picture for you, Joe. Mm. This weekend, my temperature, and this isn't a joke. This isn't me yelling out that we've won Oscars and Emmys. My temperature got up to 103.8 before I went to the hospital, mm. right? Toughness. So I'm sitting there with a 103.8, and I'm still trying to fight it off like a man, you know, because that's what mm. you do. When you're a football guy— this is what you do. There's no such thing as injuries or days off. Mm. You fucking fight through it, okay? Mm. So I'm sitting at the house, and I'm like, my boy is calling the game today. I told my wife, who was begging me to go to the hospital. I'm like, no, not until after this game. Um, and I'm not going to lie. I was half dead during the game. I, <laughs> I was in and out. But from what I've seen, I'm like, Joe Thomas did a bang-up job. Ooh. Monday Night Football isn't far, isn't far past where we are. So, mm. Joe, I'm going to tee it up to you now. How do you feel about your performance <laughs> of calling your very first NFL game on Ooh. nationally televised television? Ooh. Is that the right thing? Uh, the nationally television? televised television was a big <laughs> deal for me. Uh, the 1 o'clock start for Bucks Texans got me a little nervous because as you know once the college football season's over and all the NFL buys are finished the NFL does a three slated Saturday schedule and I was lucky enough to be selected for the early game with Rich Eisen and Nate Burleson two excellent professionals truly they are some of the best in the business, and uh, I am merely a humble rookie trying to climb the ladder of success in the media world, a la Andrew Hawkins, and I have never in my life called an entire football game. Yes, I did audition for the Monday Night Football job a year ago and the Thursday Night Football job, but that was before I'd even had any interest in getting into the media world. Uh, and so I didn't even call an entire game during my audition. I just call, called half and I really had no idea what I was doing whatsoever. At least this time along, uh, I had a little bit of background being that I did Thursday night football at, in the pregame role and the postgame role this year. And also got a, a little bit of coaching going into this week. I didn't get an opportunity to practice, but at least I had an opportunity to meet with Jerry Madelon, who works with the NFL network talent and can kind of give me just a little idea of how to prepare and how to study for this role. So uh, when the lights came on and the show started, it was sink or swim and learning on the job as pure uh, as it possibly can get. And I felt like after the first quarter, I kind of got into my groove and I feel like the three-man booth can be a little bit tough because it's a little hard to know when to talk and, and who's going to take what comments. Um, but after about the f first quarter, I think me, Nate and I got into a nice little flow and a nice little rhythm, and we had a good back and forth going. And by the end of the fourth quarter, 
um, you're sitting there going, man, I wish we had more game because I feel like I'm just starting to hit my stride. And, uh, you walk out of that booth going, man, I wish I could do a Sunday game tomorrow because I'd feel like I'd be 10 times better. Cause there were so many things that happened during the game that I noticed, but with me being new that I didn't know how to fit it in there. And I didn't know how to call back the replay. And actually the second and third quarter, my monitor, I was having all sorts of trouble the monitor that you're supposed to be able to look at and get a quick replay of what happened while Rich is giving you the play by play. Like it kept scrambling and going to like when the bucks were on offense, it would go to like plays that the Texans were running and stuff. And so I stopped looking at my monitor, which actually totally screwed me at one point because I wasn't looking at the monitor and Hawk, I know you're such a professional in this media business with multiple Emmys. So you know all about this, but um, you always got to kind of peek at what the people at home are watching because you never know when they're going to throw a graphic up there that you need to talk about, even though the game is kind of going on. And at one point in the game, Will Fuller hurt his groin. And so he goes out and it was a few plays later, I started talking, I think about the Bucks offense because uh, something had just happened on the field that was interesting. And they started showing a Jameis interception. Yeah, it was probably one of Jameis's 14 interceptions during the game. (laughs) Uh, But actually, so they they showed a graphic about how much better the Texans offense is with Will Fuller on the field because of how those three receivers become difficult to put a coverage together that can cover all of them at the same time. Obviously, you want to have a double on DeAndre if you can, but then you can't leave Will Fuller wide open because he's so fast. And then Kenny Stills is also a fast guy. So uh, you kind of have to pick your poison with all three of those guys on the field, and it makes it really a difficult matchup. And so anyway, so the next-gen stat comes up, and I'm still saying something stupid about the Bucks, and I hear my producer in my ear saying something. But as you know, Hawk, when you're talking – you try to kind of ignore what's going on in your ear because if you stop to listen, the people at home don't hear the person talking to you in your ear. You're All they hear like is you sounding like an idiot, stopping in right. the middle of what you're saying. And so I've just, I just, you know, blast right through that. I'm just talking, and all of a sudden, I realized that he was saying monitor, monitor, monitor. And he wanted me <laughs> to look at the monitor and realize, hey, you idiot, we got something else that you need to be talking about. So thankfully, my man Nate Burleson, he uh, quickly dove in there and and picked it up and was able to throw in the little uh, Will Fuller hit right at the end and kind of saved it. Um, Which leads me to my first point. Uh Is it true, Hawk, that you are faking this illness for attention because you heard how great the reviews were for the Joe Thomas, Nate Burleson, Rich Eisen on play-by-play booth that uh, there was some extreme ex-girlfriend or uh, girlfriend jealousy going on there? You know what? I'm I'm not going to confirm or deny those reports. Uh, I will say before I was sick, I spent all week, you know, hanging out with tons of Hall of Famers who are already currently in Canton. Uh, that, you know, some of which I'm not going to name names, but they did make the NFL 100 all time list. Um, and let's just say they're really getting into audio and podcasting and they thought it would be cool to have someone who is a, a seasoned vet. So, yeah, I, I think you and Nate sounded great together. Joe, if that's what you wanted to know, you guys sounded awesome. OK, round of applause, buddy. So you what you're saying it. is you've made friends with a Hall of Famer that's interested in getting into a floundering podcast uh, that Business. is destined yeah. to crash and burn within weeks. Well, if, if that's the case, good luck. You're not with the you only him, sucker right? on the market, Joe. You basically, is what I'm sucker. telling you. Oh, yeah. Good for you. Uh, but it was funny, you know, getting getting ready for this. The one thing that I took away from Jerry when we were talking on the phone and trying to get ready for this game was 
Do not, under any circumstances, look at any of your Twitter during the game. Don't even look at your phone because <laughs> all your friends and family back home are going to lie for the other guy and they're going to text you and tell you how great you're doing. And then if you go on Twitter, they're going to absolutely lambast you. Like it doesn't matter who you are, they're going to destroy you. And so I took that to heart. And it was like early on in my football career, I think maybe the first six or seven years in the NFL, um, I'd never read the newspaper, never watched football TV during the year, except for games. I love watching the games. Um, but I never watched like the crappy shows that like Hawk and I are on now, like total access, uh, <laughs> where they would talk crap about us. Um, because I, you know, I, I knew that whatever they said would either get me thinking I'm better than I am or worse than I am because those, those, uh, media shows, they never properly rate your current standing in the league. And so I knew I needed to stay off Twitter. So I actually didn't even look at uh, any of the stuff on Twitter until I got back home to Wisconsin that night. Um, uh, and that's when I was pleasantly surprised that for the most part, I mean, it seemed like people weren't murdering me and uh, uh, burning me at the stake like most first time color commentators. So that right. was that was pretty, pretty exciting. That was a nice little Christmas treat for myself. Yeah. But I had definitely prepared because Rich and I and Nate and Melissa all had flights pretty close to about the same time. So right after the game, they put us in cars. They give us a police escort right to the airport, get to the airport. We go through security and we sit down and um, the Patriots Bills game was on TV. So uh, all I can think about is before I go and look at Twitter, I need to have at least like seven drinks so that at that point I don't care. And uh, thankfully, Rich Eisen sitting next to me in the seasoned pro that he is. He orders a Kettle One Orange on the rocks double. And so him and I wow. smashed about three or four of those before my flight. And so by the time I landed, after a couple more on the plane, because God bless the NFL Network, they put my six foot seven ass in first class, which is amazing. Ah, so the special. two and a half hour flight from uh, <laughs> Tampa to Wisconsin, I was enjoying a nice first class flight and plenty more drinks, uh, plenty, plenty of beers on the plane. So I landed and I was well lubed to be able to handle the hate on Twitter. And to my pleasant surprise, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. You're always going to get a mixed bag of treats when you look yeah, up yeah. Twitter. It doesn't matter how great you do or how bad you do. Like there's going to be people on both sides of the fence, but you always know like what people are going to hate no matter what. Right. So you know, which people you got enough love from enough important people that actually know a thing or two about sports broadcasting and media to know that you did a good job, obviously, right? Because I would also tell you you suck. Like yeah, it would have been the first thing I text you. Yeah, I'd you're like, exactly, babe. you're exactly like Steelers fans. So here's how I I split the Twitter thing uh, up. And and as you know, like in football, when you're on the field, you kind of know if you did good or bad. Um, especially the next day, you sit down in the meeting room and your coach gives you basically your report card where every play you had. We'll, we'll tell you exactly, did you use the right technique? Did you block the right guy? And uh, did you finish, basically? So those are kind of like the three things. Like, did you do your job, essentially, every play? So you know exactly where you stood, and you can compare that to every single week based on if you use a percentage of how many plays did I do my job and how many plays did I screw up. So you know right away, like, how you did. But in the media world, it's so bizarre and weird because – Everybody is so sensitive to feedback, it seems, especially the guys that never were football players, and they can't handle it. And so, like, producers and people that are your bosses, they never give you legitimate feedback. So you never hear, like, oh, this is what you could do better, this is what you did well. All they ever tell you is, that was great. 
And so you never really know how you actually did. So that's why I think like everybody in the media world is so obsessed with like their Twitter stuff because that's the only place where you actually get feedback. And I think, you know, if you go to Reddit or some of these other places, I think you can get some feedback too. But uh, it's important to understand that there's a bias that exists out there. And so you got to remove those biased people right off the bat. So if, if you were from Cleveland, I didn't even look at your stuff because I knew you were going to say how great it was. If you were right. from Pittsburgh, you were in Hawk camp. And I knew you were going to say how horrible it was. So I immediately removed those mentions right away. So right. I kind of had like a little middle section. If you were from a non-AFC North uh, locale, I put a little bit more weight into what you had to say about it. And by and large, I, I, I felt the feedback that I appreciated the most was the fact that a lot of people said it didn't sound like I was trying to give them like too much analysis. And I think that was one of the things that as I was getting ready for the game, talking to people that are in this business professionally and they know what they're doing are saying is too many announcers and commentators right now want to sound too like in the weeds commentary-ish. And they don't just talk to the every fan, right? And I, I think my brand, what we Nate and I were trying to sell, if you're selling something, is just, hey, Nate and I are sitting at the bar stool. We got beers in front of us. We're watching the game and right. we're allowing the 75 people that are actually watching the Jameis Winston dumpster fire come into the booth with us and enjoy our commentary on the game. We might entertain you a little bit. We might educate you a little bit, but hopefully we all have a good time and we have fun doing it. And actually at one point, Rich had consistently messed up the Winston and Watson and he was going back and forth on both the quarterbacks. I did notice Because that. I think it was... Jameis Winston was throwing passes to a receiver named Watson. And yep. then the other side, obviously, was Deshaun Watson. And so he kept screwing that up. He made a good mention about it's a new drinking game. And the next time he messed it up, I said, drink on air. And I was wondering if anybody in the Tomahawk would recognize <laughs> that because it's eerily similar to the, to the Tomahawk drinking game, the Kyle yep. Shanahan drinking game. Uh, so I kind of had a little chuckle on that one. And hopefully the members of the Tomahawk that were listening were enjoying that. Well, I mean, there's a common theme for you. You care about everything that you do. And also, whenever there's places that you can improve on, we just make a drinking game out of it. So <laughs> that's awesome. You're an alcoholic, but you're a very, very good sports commentator, Joe. Congratulations, man. We couldn't be more proud of you. We were in the text message in the group chat singing your praises as if you needed any more uh, great attributes to add to your resume. Yet, here we are, brother. Mm. So congrats. And now... You can kick it to Tama Headlines. This is a special report from Tama Headlines. All right, Hawk. Patriots sweep the Bills, remain dominant in the AFC East. Did you ever believe that the Bills could actually beat the Patriots in Foxborough? No. No, I never believed that the Bills could beat the Patriots in Foxborough. But they actually did encourage me in the way they played because they made it a lot closer of a game than I thought. Um, and I do feel like the tide is going to turn there soon. Everyone's already talking about, like, oh, it's a down year for the Patriots, blah, blah, blah. The record is still incredible. They're still going into the playoffs with a ton of momentum. But the reality is this. The NFC or the AFC East has never been even a question late in the season in a very long time, right? And for someone whose team has a great defense, yes, but such a young quarterback who actually played really well in that game and made some incredible incredibly accurate throws in big-time situations. We've watched Josh Allen do that versus the Patriots, and then we've seen him on Thanksgiving also have a really big game. 
So when you have a young quarterback with the kind of ability Josh Allen has, he still has room to mature and develop, um, but he plays up in big moments, that has to be scary for the New England Patriots. So I didn't think the Bills could win, um, but watching them, I was still encouraged. Like, oh, okay, this team actually might not be that far off from actually knocking the Patriots off. I actually was kind of going into this game picking the Bills because I've been on the Bills bandwagon all season, as we've talked about on the show from the beginning. I picked the Bills to be my surprise team to make the wild card, so they're making me sound very smart right now. Um, I love this team exactly where it is. Josh Allen's playing consistently better football as the season has wore on. We know he's kind of a dual-threat quarterback, not exactly the talent as far as short area quickness that Lamar Jackson is, but still a very good runner. And I think Brian Dayball, their offensive coordinator, who's going to be a hot candidate this offseason for head coach, has done a nice job incorporating an ability for Josh Allen to use his legs to challenge the defense, but also making sure that he's throwing the football and he's growing as a passer. And so for them to have the lead in the fourth quarter in this game and force New England to score 11 points to win this game in the fourth quarter, uh, I think it says a lot about where the Bills are and the fact that they're legitimate playoff contenders once we get to January. Because in the playoffs and the NFL playoffs is completely the polar opposite to the NBA playoffs. In NFL playoffs is you get in and you legitimately have a chance to run the table and win the Super Bowl. We've seen right. all sorts of wild card teams get hot in January and go on and win Super Bowls. Whereas in the NBA, there's really only two teams from each conference that have any chance, and the rest of the games are, are not, not in doubt at all until you really get to the conference finals, and then the finals, it's competitive, and that's where people really start watching. But the NFL playoffs is totally different. So I think this game actually gives the Bills a lot of confidence for them to be able to go into Foxborough, play as well as they did, have the Patriots right on the ropes, and I think if they see him again in the playoffs, obviously the game will be in New England again. But I wouldn't be surprised if the Bills are able to knock him off because they do things that give the Patriots trouble. One, they have a pretty good quarterback that can run and seems to be better at throwing the football right now. And they've got a great defense. So they could really limit the Patriots. I thought the Patriots offense looked as good as they have in recent weeks. And they still were only able to score 24 points. And so to me, that's a good sign for the Bills going forward. But uh, Hawk, does this change your thoughts on where the Patriots are as far as Super Bowl contenders? Uh, no, what changed my thoughts on where they are as Super Bowl contenders was watching them play against the other top three quarterbacks in the AFC and Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, and Lamar Jackson because they have to go through those three guys to get to the Super Bowl. And I just don't see how they do it because they laid an egg every time they played against one of them. So my question is for you, Joe. I know you said you were a Josh Allen believer from the beginning of the season, and you were. Sometimes it was stupid. Even though it makes you look good now, I still believe it was them. <laughs> um, but you also said you take Josh Allen long-term over Lamar Jackson. Is that still your stance? I'm giving you an opportunity here to either make amends with your sports media career or double down and give me more content to use against you for another calendar year. Good thing I don't care one bit about my sports media career, and I'm just out here having fun and slinging from the hip. So I'm going to go ahead and put it on record again that right now, this is exactly how I feel. Lamar Jackson is clearly the better quarterback. Obviously, right now, he is a much better quarterback down the line, the only thing that would change that based on the current trajectory right now, Josh Allen's playing well and his arrow is pointed up. 
Lamar Jackson's okay. playing exceptional, and his arrow is pointing up. He's becoming a better passer as we move on, and he's a phenomenal runner. And Josh Allen is probably not as good of a passer right now because of the decision-making factor, I think. When you talk about just uh, accuracy, they're both probably pretty similar. Maybe even give a nod to Lamar Jackson in the accuracy. So uh, the only thing that I would say is that I think long-term, just the way their bodies are built, I would say Josh Allen has more potential for good longevity being a dual threat quarterback than Lamar who's more of a slighter built guy um but I'm I'm gonna still say right now that that take a little while ago was bad because Lamar Jackson is better built right now when I consider all those factors for the long term outside as you were even naming them I was like okay this is not this is not going the way that I imagined he's like okay he's a better thrower he's smarter He's also faster, yeah, um, and he can run better. But long term, yep. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Right. yeah. The the only thing that disrupts that argument from me is is like I was kind of setting up a little bit is I think the propensity to get injured is going to be higher with Lamar, and so there's always going to be that fear when you do have that dual threat quarterback, like how long he's going to be able to do this. Like Lamar is very very good at finding green grass and getting down and avoiding a lot of those big hits but he's still running the ball a lot. He's still taking those hits and it's only so long before he gets a pretty solid hit. We actually saw it this weekend against Cleveland. He was pointing to one of his tight ends. I'm not sure. I can't remember exactly who it was when he was, it was Hurst. He was pointing upfield like, Hey, you bonehead. The number one rule of being an open field blocker is you never go backwards and block behind the runner. You always turn and run forward and you try to block in front of the runner right right which even andrew hawkins knows that and he's one of the yeah. worst blocking receivers i oh, ever played with and so lamar's yeah. pointing go block that guy and he's expecting him to get blocked and hurst the idiot turns around and leaves the guy free and smokes the 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 player from the browns just smokes lamar jackson and to lamar's credit he popped right up and uh as the old saying goes it doesn't matter how hard you get hit it's whoever pops up first wins. So Lamar was like the first one up. He was all good. Everything was cool. Everybody in Baltimore could uh, breathe a sigh of relief. Um, but you do you do get concerned long term. You know the the statistics say that as a running quarterback, you're going to get dinged up, and you wonder you know how that will affect his career. But you do realize Josh Allen is also a running quarterback. Well, that's what I'm saying. But I, I see Josh Allen being a bigger player. He's a little bit more like Cam Newton, where you're like. Okay, wear and tear is going to be there, so he might not make it more than like the 10 or so that Cam has kind of survived. Um, But I think the propensity for like the one hit where they take you out for the season and you go on IR is greater for Lamar because he is slighter. He does move much quicker in the short area, which gives you an opportunity to avoid a lot of tackles, but it also does put you in a predicament if ever you do make a a slight mistake or you slip on some slippery turf or you misjudge it or your bonehead tight end goes and blocks the wrong guy. Like you're going to potentially open yourself up when you're very vulnerable to like those really big hits. Whereas most of the Josh Allen, Cam Newton type hits are, they're both kind of lowering their shoulder and it's a big collision, but you know, he's going to be able to come out on the backside but it's like that cumulative effect after 10 years. You're like, okay, he's pretty banged up now. He's probably not going to be able to continue to be the runner going forward. All right. Well, we'll agree to disagree there um, and continue to monitor. So as any chance that I get to throw something in your face, you know I'm all about it. All right, as next headline. The Eagles took the upper hand in the NFC East against the Cowboys on Sunday. It was a game 
that the Cowboys had a prime position to position themselves as not just a playoff contender, but take advantage of the division lead, and they dropped the ball. What are your thoughts on the Cowboys taking the L? And specifically, what should they do with Jason Garrett? Well, I think the thing that really is hurting Jason Garrett right now this season is the fact that every time his team has a really big game where the season is on the line and they need to come out and play well, they come out and they play like crap. Uh, We saw it this past weekend in Philadelphia. Um, When I did their Thursday night game in Chicago, they did the same thing. And for, for a head coach that's coaching for his job, you would like to see the best performances, the best game plans, the way that the team is the most motivated are for the biggest games of the year. Like, don't just go and beat up the patsies on your schedule, which is what the Cowboys have been doing. you got to come out, especially down the stretch when you're playing for the division and the playoffs and in everybody's jobs. You want the best version of yourself in those situations. We just haven't seen that from the Cowboys. And so for me, that's a really bad sign for Jason Garrett and the staff. Now, they do still have a chance to make the playoffs and win their division. And if they do that, like I said earlier in the pod, it's all about just making the playoffs. They could still go on a little run and keep Jason Garrett's job. But based on everything we've seen from them this season, I would say at this point, the chances of that happening are very, very unlikely, probably yeah. in the two to 5% range if you're a betting man. And so I do believe that the Cowboys won't make the playoffs. The, the Eagles are going to win their division. And then I think Jason Garrett does get fired because they don't make the playoffs and they, they needed to win two games in the playoffs, in my opinion, for Jason to keep his job. And obviously that won't happen if they get eliminated. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing that stood out to me was actually Carson Wentz. Um, a lot of conversation around him and what he's not. He hasn't played playing well. No, he has zero wide receivers, you know, but in this game, and if you look at the last couple of weeks down the stretch, he's essentially put the team on his back and done whatever he's had to do. He's done whatever he's had to do to get W's and keep them in position. So now they're one win away from going to the playoffs. And it's really a kudos to him. And if we talk about those top-tier quarterbacks, he continues to prove that his name belongs in that category. Because when you look at the wide receivers he had, man, he was literally making sugar out of shit. Um, and the Cowboys, because of, that, because of that fact, that's why the Cowboys should be ashamed of themselves. You talked about coaches being motivated in big games and putting their best stuff on display. That's why I've always hated the Steelers, like growing up in Steeler country. I had to root for the Bengals because my brother played for them. And then obviously getting to the league, playing for the Bengals, playing for the Browns. Um, All my friends, my family are Steelers fans. So there's always just been like a hate in my blood for them. I've always respected them, and you have to because they've done so incredible over the history of football. Um, But I hated them. So what I love about Mike Tomlin is when it's a big game, you can tell by his demeanor that it's a big game. You can tell he's trying to elevate his coaching to match the intensity of that game. And not every coach is that kind of way. So I'm not asking for Jason Garrett to show me emotion because Bill Belichick also doesn't show emotion. But you can just tell his focus is at a different level in these huge games. And I never see that with Jason Garrett, right? There's never in the big games Jason Garrett shows up uh, in a different way, right? He elevates his game. And he's been there a long time, man. And so now it's like, yo, we've we've done this experiment. This thing has run its course. You kind of know what you're getting. You're getting nine and seven out of the Cowboys, season in and season out, as long as Jason Garrett is the head coach. I always think that as a team, you kind of take on the personality of your head coach. That's why we never hear anything from 
the Patriots. There's never a peep from those guys that uh, can be made into bulletin board material, or there's there's hardly any peeps that you hear from them off the field that becomes drama that they have to deal with in the locker room. Uh, if you have a goofball coach that is undisciplined personally, then I think that's the type of team you get. Um, and so for Jason Garrett, he's very steady, which actually I like for my head coach. I, I don't want a roller coaster type head coach. Um, but as the stakes rise, typically you want a coach that the focus becomes more intense and the details become more important. And all of a sudden you see your players playing at a, a better level. You see your coaches coaching at a better level. And it's been the opposite with Jason Garrett, at least in recent memory. Um, and that's been the state of the team. And to me, that's a reflection of the head coach. And clearly, I think when uh, Jerry Jones dis- makes a decision after the season on Jason Garrett's future, that is going to be a big part of it. Uh, anyways, let's move on. 49ers. They uh, take a one-game lead over the Seahawks with a surprising loss by the Seahawks to the Arizona Cardinals this past weekend. Um, And now the 49ers are going to take on the Seahawks in a Week 17 showdown. San Fran beat L.A., and now the Rams are out of the playoffs. Seattle got pushed around by Arizona, as we just mentioned. Um, What do we think here is going to happen in Week 17 when it's Niners-Seahawks in Seattle? Uh I think the 49ers win because the Seahawks beat them the first time. I don't I don't think they're going to sweep the 49ers this season. The 49ers defense is too good. I know they've been banged up a little bit. Um, I know they haven't been perfect even da- down the last couple of weeks. But for Kyle Shanahan and kind of what we always talked about just right. a minute ago, he plays up in these kind of games. These are games he prepares for. I knew he was going to sweep Sean McVay earlier in the season. And I love Sean McVay. I think he's a great coach. But I also feel like as competitive as Kyle Shanahan is, drink, that he watched everyone crown Sean McVay as the offensive guru of the NFL running a system that Kyle Shanahan spent his entire, entire life learning under and perfecting alongside of him in the same system, right? Um, so I just felt like, you know, Kyle in those games wanted to put that on full display, and really show like, yo, I'm I'm still the offensive guru um, that I was at the Falcons and everywhere that I've been. And I've had years and, and different teams to show and prove for it. Uh, so I knew he was going to sweep them. Again, I don't think the Seahawks are going to sweep the 49ers because I understand. I think that Cal understands what that would mean for what he's been doing so far this season. Yeah, when we worked with Kyle, he always came up with his best stuff in the biggest moments. Yep. Uh, now, we can't really say that down the stretch because we ended up putting in uh, Johnny, who was not prepared for the big moments that but he that was But that wasn't a Kyle That decision. was not Kyle's fault. That was that not, was not Kyle's That's decision either. That's the reason why he left. <laughs> exactly. He did not trust the folks that were pulling the strings there at the top of the list. Yeah. Um, but I do believe that the second time Kyle's team's play a defense specifically talking about the offense that he puts together in San Francisco versus the Seattle defense. That's pretty strong. They always seem to perform better because what I say about Kyle's offense is it's very difficult. It's very dynamic. It stretches you horizontally because of the way that they run the outside zone and the way that they run the the orbit motion and they uh, accommodate and collaborate all the things that an offense does. And it, it plays well off of each other. And sometimes defenses are able to come up with two or three things that they see that they can really kind of exploit from Kyle's offense. So 
it, for instance, when you're running the outside zone, a lot of teams will try to take the nose guard who usually lines up right over the center and they'll widen them out if they can get a tip on which direction the zone play is going to be coming to. And so when you widen that nose, it makes it a more difficult block for the center because now he's got to snap the football and he's got to try to reach his head to the outside of a much wider nose guard. And anytime you get penetration when you're running the outside zone, it ruins the play. And so a lot of teams would try to do that, for instance. And so the second time around, if you know a team is going to do that, just in this case, you can do different things from a protection and a run game standpoint to be able to take advantage of that. So it's like, okay, in chess, I know what your move is now. Now I know how to counter that. And so going into these games the second time around, a lot of times Kyle will have the counter ready and there's just not that many answers for Kyle's offense. And so once you realize what a team is going to try to do to attack it, Kyle's really good at coming up with the counter punch. And so I agree with you that I think the 49ers are going to win this, but also the reason that the Cardinals beat the Seahawks this weekend wasn't because the Cardinals are just some way better team than the Seahawks. No. Seahawks have had a rash of injuries at the running back position. They lost their top three running backs, including Chris Carson, who's a stud. Got to watch him in person earlier on in the season on Thursday Night Football, and he was just steamrolling people. He's a great back in that system, and he's been playing well all season. So that's going to be really tough because he's done with a hip injury for the entire season. And they lost their best offensive lineman, Dwayne Brown, who's a stud at left tackle. So they were really reeling in this game, not to mention losing Josh Gordon to suspension and uh, defensive tackle Al Woods to suspension. And so anytime you have these cluster injuries at positions, especially towards the end of a season, it becomes really hard because now you're going to have to replace those guys with players that haven't been on the roster very long. Right? Ah. If you have an injury, if you have like one injury at running back, You've got a guy who's the backup who maybe hasn't played as much, but he's been in that system all year. He's been working with Russell Wilson or Russell's backup, and so he knows what the expectations are. He knows the offense pretty well, but if you have three injuries at one position, whether that be running back or left tackle or center or defensive back, whatever it is, now you're pulling guys off the street at a point in the season when there's not a lot of guys on the street that can really do much to help you. And so uh, for the Seahawks to have those type of injuries right here at the end of the season is really unfortunate because they were playing really good football. And I love what Russell Wilson was doing. And I think for the Seahawks to have any type of hope in the playoffs to be able to make a run, Russell's just going to have to completely put the team on his back and we've seen that most of the season with him being able to pull out those close games at the end. But this is going to have to be, all right, no more run game. We're going to run when we have to. But, Russell, it's your ball. Here's the keys to the Lambo. Go ahead and take it for 10 laps. And at the end, you're going to have to win 9 out of 10 in order for this team to win. Well, I'm glad you said that because that's actually the opposite reason why I think the Seahawks have a chance. But I'm not going to tease you yet because the perfect time to get to Am I Tripping? Guys, the Chiefs dismantled the Bears in Chicago on Sunday night. Everyone is talking about the Ravens, but am I tripping or are the Chiefs a sleeping giant in the AFC playoff picture? You are not tripping. Actually, this is something that I've said for a couple weeks. The Chiefs are just positioned perfectly right now for a great run in the AFC, and this is why I think the Patriots don't have a chance to make it back to the play or to the Super Bowl is because when Patrick Mahomes got hurt, everybody just wrote them off because everybody saw the severity of the injury on the field and just assumed it was an ACL or something really bad where he was going to be gone. And instantly in everybody's mind, they wrote him off. They said, Oh, the defense isn't good enough. And without Patrick Mahomes, they got no chance. All of a sudden Patrick Mahomes comes back a couple weeks later 
And now he's playing as good as he was in the beginning of the season or even last year when he was the MVP. The defense all of a sudden woke up and started playing good football. And this is now a team that's under the radar, which I always think that the teams that are playing their best football in December, which right now the Chiefs are, that are under the radar that people aren't talking about, always have the best opportunity to make a run in the playoffs because the playoffs, everything gets heightened and ratcheted up. And you're never going to overlook a team in the playoffs. But I still think that to to be able to get the most out of your players, you got to let them think that they're playing the biggest, baddest wolf on town in, in town. And that's what the Patriots have always excelled at doing. And right now, even though we know the chiefs, how great they are, they don't have that reputation where everyone's just thinking, Oh, the great chiefs right now. And so you match them up against two, three teams in the AFC. They really have an opportunity to kind of sneak up on people uh, because of what happened to them in the middle of the season. Well, I, I, I yeah, I, I don't think you're tripping either. Um, because I think the NFL is changing. And I don't know if it's actually changing. Because now that I'm thinking about it, I mean, Tom Good Brady. Take. Tom Brady, <laughs> he's the best because we know that when he gets in this situation, he takes over. Right? If you look at, like, the NBA, right? NBA is a player-driven league. You sign up. You go watch. You want to see certain players ball out in the playoffs. You want to see those players take over. And you know that whatever player could take over the most, the longest in the playoffs— will most likely win a championship, whether that's LeBron, whether that's Kawhi, whether that's KD. You know, when those guys are sitting, people aren't showing up to the games, right? But I'm not even uh, a Warriors fan or I'm not even a Raptors fan. But when Kawhi was playing, I was turning the TV on to watch him, right? Because it was like, yo, this is special. I want to sign up to see. Football is now getting into that conversation. And Patrick Mahomes is one of those guys, right? I don't care if you're a Chiefs fan. If you're a football fan, you're watching somebody throw the ball the way he does, he's a guy that you're like, damn, I just want to see the guy play. I want to see him throw a no-look pass in the red zone because I've never seen that before. You know, Lamar Jackson. You're showing up to see Lamar Jackson play because it's different. He is a guy that is doing things you've never done, and you understand that once he's hot, he's almost impossible to stop. So when you get into the playoff scenarios, yeah, you talk about if the Chiefs face the Ravens. I can't sit up here and say, oh, the Ravens are going to smash them. That's not the case. Because if Mahomes is on, it's peak Mahomes, he's impossible to stop, right? So Lamar has to also be peak Lamar, and the defenses have to be peak defenses. So I agree they're contenders, and it's because there's just certain guys in the field that have just elevated their game larger than we've seen so early in their careers. All right, next one, guys. Michael Thomas broke Marvin Harrison's record for catches in a single season with a full game to spare. He has 145 catches. He's a 99 in Madden, but he has almost no chance to win the MVP award this year. We've seen Calvin Johnson catch for over 1,900 yards. Randy Moss caught 23 touchdowns. Am I tripping or will a wide receiver never, ever win the NFL MVP award? A wide receiver will win the MVP award. It's just going to take a while, especially now, like we just talked about, because quarterbacks are so good. If this was maybe... 2017, where I feel like the quarterback play was pretty terrible, with the exception of the normal cast of guys that are always good, um, and he was doing this, I think it would have been enough for them to say, oh, well, we've seen the other guys win MVP awards. He's doing something new. He's doing the best that we've ever seen at his position, and it's not tied to one quarterback, right? Because if it was Drew Brees throughout the whole year, they would just pat Drew Brees on the back and say, good job for helping him do that. But this is a guy who did it also with Teddy Bridgewater, it's just that he also did it in a year where we have Lamar Jackson, where Russell Wilson is still playing lights out with the exception of the last game, and where guys like Patrick Mahomes have raised the bar so much that, like you guys talked about, in a season where he's still done really good, we're just like, eh, 
it doesn't impress me as much as last year's did, you know? Um, so I think a wide receiver still has a chance to win it. But I don't think other positions do. If a kicker has the best season a kicker can ever have, he won't even be mentioned in MVP. And the same goes with left tackle. So I want to do a position, a petition to just eliminate those positions altogether because <laughs> there's no point of having them if you could be the best all time at something that we've ever seen and nobody care. Wow, very hot take there. Uh, here's why you're wrong. So a, a receiver will never in my lifetime win the NFL MVP because until they're the ones that are taking the snap, it's always going to take a quarterback distributing the football and allowing them to do great things that would give them the MVP award. And you have to have an MVP quality quarterback getting you the football to even give you that opportunity for us to recognize that you're having an MVP quality season as a receiver. So without a quarterback thrown to the, the receiver, there's no chance a receiver ever gets noticed. And without A, you don't have B. Without the quarterback, you don't have the receiver. So therefore, the receiver can never win the MVP. Well, I mean, yes, I get what you're saying. That's why the stars like did a line for Michael Thomas this year. Because to be honest, he might finish second in MVP voting. There's a chance that he finishes second, right? And we also seen recently where Aaron Donald finished top three in the MVP voting. And for a receiver, it has to be like the stars aligning where your incredible quarterback gets hurt for four to six weeks and the backup comes in and you raise your level of play in that time for people to say like, oh, okay, you really are the one uh, making all the fireworks here. Otherwise, they'll just give the love to the quarterback. So, I mean, I don't know. But you're always going to have another quarterback somewhere else in the league that's probably having a great season and the quarterback just has that much more influence over the success and failure of a team than any other position on the field. That's why it's largely a quarterback position award. Right. And so the, the improbability of having no other quarterbacks in the NFL worthy of an MVP and having the quarterback on your team that's the stud being hurt for five or six weeks and you still having an incredible season as a receiver is so, so small, I don't ever think it's going to happen in my lifetime. Well, I mean, every five years a running back wins, like – so what are you saying? Running backs will never win MVP again? No, because all a quarterback has to do in order for a running back to win the MVP is turn around and hand him the football. I could I could be the quarterback for Adrian Peterson the year he won the MVP, right? And so my point is there, there takes no talent to hand the football off. As a quarterback to throw the football 145 times to Michael Thomas, it takes a lot of talent at the quarterback position. So you'd have to have a really talented quarterback that's getting you the football but also gets hurt for a long period of time during the season. And so the combination of all those factors happening at the same time is so slim, it's not going to happen in my lifetime. I know, and it just happened this year. But it just also happened that Lamar Jackson was there. That's like, my point, though. You have to have all these improbable things happening and it's just not going to happen. It's just too improbable. Yeah, if you waited 10,000 years of NFL seasons, it's probably going to happen once because it's a 1 in 10,000 probability. So, oh, therefore, I'm gosh. betting I'm betting the odds that it won't happen in my lifetime. Has a receiver ever won MVP? No? A receiver has never won the MVP award. Funny enough, Mark Mosley, a place kicker, won the MVP in 1982. But since the year 2000, what? before that, what? it's mostly just running back. That's Wait right. a second. Mark Mosley, You can't just gloss over that. that. It's impossible. <laughs> that didn't happen. That's a ridiculous stat. I've never even I, heard of the guy. I'm boycotting the NFL now. <laughs> that is the reason why. I just sat up there and made fun of kickers about never winning MVPs. 
And you mean to tell me they have a freaking NFL MVP? There needs to be an asterisk. John, tell him the asterisk. And he was a former Cleveland Brown, Joe, so. Tell him the asterisk, John. What was the asterisk? What's the asterisk? He won the Most Valuable Player Award during the strike-shortened 1982 season. So he beat out a bunch of scabs for the MVP award. (laughs) Right, a bunch of plumbers. Mark (laughs) Mosley beat out a bunch of uh, nine-to-fivers just like myself to win the MVP. (laughs) I would have been the leading receiver in the NFL that year. Still would have lost to Mark Mosley. All right. What do we got next, John? Last one, guys. With the Seattle running back situation looking dire, as Joe mentioned, a report came out Monday that Beast Mode might be returning to Seattle just in time for the playoffs. Am I tripping? Or would Marshawn Lynch rejoining the Seahawks in Week 17 be a holiday gift to football fans everywhere? Not just a holiday gift. It would reverse the curse for the Seattle Seahawks. They have not been the same since they decided to pass the ball on the one-yard line with a chance to just seal the victory against the New England Patriots and win two Super Bowls within three years, I think it was. Um, It was the wrong football decision. It was dumb when it happened. Five years later, I'm still sitting in here wondering why the hell they didn't just give it to a guy whose nickname is Beast Mode and whose whole strategy in football, after playing a lifetime of of the game of pigskin, his whole strategy was to run through a mud effort's face, right? That was... That's, that's his whole football strategy. That's the person you give the ball to in the one-yard line. Pete Carroll is smart. He's saying, I want to reverse this curse. I want to bring him back. And by doing that, the football gods will look kindly on us once again and give us the little bit of the edge we need to get over the hump in these playoffs. So I think it's brilliant. Well, I'm not going to rehash all the comments that we had about the Seattle Seahawks throwing it on the one-yard line because – I had no problem with the play call. If you only oh run the football gosh. when you get on the goal line, then you become predictable. And then what you think you're really good at that is easy is not easy anymore. And so you have to have a wow. little level of unpredictability. And so throwing it there was not the issue. The issue is the execution, in my opinion. Uh, execution by the receivers was not good. The execution by the Patriots was excellent. So give one to the Patriots there. But I would love to see Marshawn Lynch coming back. He is the one guy that at the running back position doesn't seem to age. And I think in 10 years, he'll probably get a call and come back and still be a beast, which is totally incomprehensible. But uh, he's amazing. He's fun. I love seeing his antics on the sideline. I love hearing him after games because he's totally ridiculous with his postgame commentary, the way he steals golf carts and ghost rides the whip on the field. It's just fun watching the guy. He just has fun going out and doing it. I'll never forget the visit that I took to the uh, Detroit Lions. Him and I shared a limo uh, from the airport to the Lions facility. And I remember him just, he wouldn't stop talking. And at that point, I didn't really know who he was. He was just a running Uh back from Cal at that point. And I was like, who is this lunatic? He will not shut up in the back of this limo. And all I'm trying to do is focus on like putting my best foot forward for this pre-draft visit. And here this guy is just clowning everything. And turns out that's just who he is. And that's now why we love him. That's why he's one of the most favored uh, football players that I think anybody can ever remember because of his antics and his GAS being really low. And GAS stands for give a give a shit. Yep. That's it. His meter is is almost depleted. Okay, I, I mean, I agree with all of that, and except for the fact you said you like the play call because predictability. Let me tell you something quickly before we move on about predictability, Joe. If you walk up to Mike Tyson and you poke him in the chest and say you're a punk, 
Um, can you predict what Mike Tyson is going to do, Joe? No, he's either going to pull out a gun and shoot you, or you he's think Mike Tyson needs you? a gun for you? Really? That's how you feel about yourself. The Mike Tyson. I'm, I'm just the most you, lethal. There's hands. a lot of oper- there's a lot of things that could happen. You think Mike Tyson is going to pull out a gun to shoot you for poking him in the chest and calling him a punk? <laughs> he wow, might. he might. That is confidence. That is okay. So you're not very good. at He might need it. Well, let me tell you. He, he he's heard my broadcast you. last weekend. He knows I, I'm the Iron Mike of the, <laughs> the the color commentating booth. True, true. Well, let me let me help you with predictability. He's going to punch you in the face, and you're not going to be able to stop it, Joe. That's the whole point, <laughs> oh, okay. right? So it doesn't matter whether you Excellent. know what someone's going to do if you can't stop it, okay? A little lesson of predictability when you become the next head coach of the Cleveland Browns. Let me tell you something. There is a way to stop running backs obviously running from the one-yard line. I'm just telling you. There's yeah. plenty of defense out there. Beast mode, though. All right, man. Let's go to dog check. Dog check! <laughs> All right, Hawk, another disappointing Sunday for Browns fans. The Browns lost to the Ravens 31 to 15. Cleveland falls to six and nine on the season, four and four at home, and is now guaranteed to have a worse record than they had last year. What did you see from your hospital bed out of our brownies last weekend? Yeah, it's half the reason why I wanted to even do this podcast, man, because I'm like, there's so much to talk about. I'm not going to get into all of it because I've I've had a chance to not only see the light in the tunnel. Uh, the light at the end of the tunnel and, and walk it back to earth. Um, so it put a lot of things in perspective for me. But just watching the game, there was just so much stupid stuff that happened that I was just like shaking my head at. I hate that I, I hate that we're these guys that we have to come on microphones and talk about oh what's what's going bad and what the Browns need to do. Because when we were players, we hated those guys. You know what I'm saying? Like we genuinely like didn't like those people who made literal livings out of talking about what they needed to do. Um, but that being said, I don't care. After I thought about it some more, after I was on my sick bed this week, and I'm like, it, it's not that hard. That's though. the hawk we love. Yeah, I mean, the one that doesn't my care. biggest issue came early on in the game when, you know, I mean, we talked about all the scenarios, right? And Dustin Fox tweeted out about everything that needed to happen for the Browns to make the playoffs. Yes, I'm optimistic, but I try to be realistic as well. It wasn't that far-fetched. And in last week's game, everything happened that we needed to happen except for the Browns winning. Um, and most people say, well, it's the Ravens. It's one of the best teams in the league. That was far-fetched anyway. Well, yeah, maybe. But then again, the Browns already whooped their ass earlier in the season. And up until two minutes left in this game, they were playing them pretty well. So when the Ravens took the lead to be 7-6 with like a minute and 20 left, the Browns got the ball back, and we've seen this happen before. This actually happened in the Seahawks game, too, where uh, the coach should probably run the clock. Besides the fact you have Nick Chubb and you need to be running the ball anyway, just run the clock to get to halftime. We throw it three times, incomplete, give them the ball back, and they go back down and score right again to go into halftime up 14-6, right? Like, that's a big deal. Those are coaches' decisions that put your team in a bad spot. And We talk about this all the time. If you're a player – that it's like, yo, I'm giving everything that I got. You have to do your job as well because we all have a job to do. That kind of stuff would piss me off if I was a player. And I've talked about it before, but when I was with the Bengals and we were playing the Bears, I think the opening game of the season, we had just signed James Harrison, and Jay Gruden did the same thing. When we got to the, the locker room at halftime, we had to stop James Harrison from trying to whoop Jay Gruden's ass in the locker room. <laughs> because he was that mad. What? Like, I'm talking about, as we're going into the locker room, he's yelling like, are you fucking kidding me? 
Why didn't you run the ball? Are you serious? Because we threw it three times, punted it. They went right down and, sc- and kicked the field goal. And James was pissed. This is the guy who's been to the, the Steelers for two decades. He, does, he only knows in his mind, in that situation, you help your defense out. You just get to the locker room. So run the ball, run out the clock. Don't try to score with a minute and 10 left from your own 20. Just get to the locker room, regroup, and let's get it going in the second half. So we got in the locker room, and it, it literally took multiple players holding him back because he was trying to beat up Jay Gruden at halftime. Now, <laughs> I'm not saying that that's sane by any stretch of the imagination, but what I am saying is— Well, James is not sane. No, but as players, again, you just you expect your coaches to also put you in a position to win. That wasn't putting them in a position to win, and it just began, it began the route after that where you know Lamar just continued to do what Lamar was doing. Maybe they wouldn't have stopped him anyway, but that coaching decision right there, you can tell, um, clearly affected the game. Yeah, that was disappointing for me because the Browns' defense had largely done a great job bottling up Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens' offense, um, which was really the question mark coming in because the the Browns' defensive line is – uh, kind of a shell of what they look like at the beginning of the season, losing Miles Garrett to suspension and Olivier Vernon uh, to a knee injury. And so when you lose both your your stud defensive ends, and a 4-3 especially, where those guys are expected to play run pass, whatever, three downs, they're out there the entire game. To lose both those guys is really tough. And when you're playing against a fantastic running quarterback like Lamar Jackson is, you don't have those guys that's on the edge to keep Lamar in the pocket to make sure that uh, you have at least some athleticism on the edge to try to slow him down a little bit, give your safeties and your linebackers an opportunity to get up and try to gang tackle him, which is the best way to handle it. Um, you're really at a disadvantage. And they, they had done largely a really good job up till that point in the game. I think the Browns were up 6-0 at the two-minute warning. Um, and so they had a really fantastic opportunity to go into the locker room at halftime up 6-0 on the Ravens, make the Ravens sort of real, and have an opportunity to go out and play a good second half. Hopefully the offense starts playing a little bit better. And you got a chance to win this game and put yourself in position in Week 17 to still get into the playoffs against kind of all odds. Wow. And then because of some poor decisions and then poor execution uh, inside of two minutes, now all of a sudden you go into the halftime locker room and you're down 14 to six. That's just so demoralizing to lose that energy and that momentum going in. Um, And then you got to sit there for 12 minutes at halftime and kind of stare at each other like, what the hell happened? I think even Demarius Randall said it after the game. He goes, we're up 6-0 at the two-minute warning. All of a sudden, we blink, and we're losing 14-6 to at halftime. And so um, that can be really demoralizing for a team going into halftime. Right. And it was, you know, like I said, nothing happens in a vacuum, but you you want your coach to put you in good position and understand the situation you're in. And um, when you have the ball and your opponent has no timeouts, but you're backed up, you know, in your own 20 or 30-yard line, it is – imperative to understand that if you don't get this first down you don't want to punt it to a team that's got a dynamic offense like the ravens what you need to do is okay maybe you're going to pass on first down maybe even pass on second down but when you get to third down it's important to run the football because you need to chew up that clock and give your opponent as little time as possible so you spread things out and then you run a draw play and you know what kareem hunt he's got a pretty good opportunity to get that first down on third and ten But if you throw the football, even if they're supposedly short passes that you expect to complete, 
there's a you know at least a 25% or more chance that you don't complete it. And now you're punting the ball and giving the ball back to Lamar with over a minute left uh, in the half to come down and score. And so uh, it's just a bad situation. And I think there was a few of those throughout the game. And so for a coach like Freddie Kitchens, who's clearly on the hot seat and um, you know is going to have uh, some evaluation at the end of the season from the front office on whether they bring him back or not, you want to be able to put your best foot forward from a coaching decision standpoint to finish the season because there's been some tough coaching decisions throughout the season that he wanted to sh- be able to sit there in John Dorsey and Jimmy Haslam's office at the end of the season and say, look, you know, at the beginning of the season, I was still learning. I was a new head coach. I was dealing with a lot of things on my plate, but I got better as a play caller. I got better as a game manager and a game decision maker as a season wore on, but to have a number of poor decisions on his part in this game is not going to help his cause. One other thing I'll mention, there was a point in the first half where they had the ball right around like the 35 yard line, 40 yard line, and they were going to go for it on fourth down, but they didn't have the right personnel or they had too many guys in the field or something. So um, instead of just taking the penalty and then punting it because you need the space for your punter anyway, they called timeout and then they ran the punting team on anyway and punted. So you wasted a timeout for no reason. Um, it's just little things like that that kind of have been showing back up that as a head coach, you need to be able to get those things right because that that's not a matter of, oh, my team didn't have talent or um, you know the play call didn't work out or something. That's just mistakes that as a head coach you can't make because as a front office person when you're determining the fate of your head coach in the offseason you're going to say okay let's say next season this is in the playoffs and all of a sudden we have an opportunity in the AFC championship game to maybe go to the Super Bowl and it's going to come down to a timeout here or a coaching decision on fourth and one yeah. there like those are things that you need to be able to check off the list and think that it's automatic from a head coaching standpoint like oh Every head coach in this situation uh, is going to get this decision right. And for Freddie to not make the right decision in those situations on a number of occasions throughout the season, but then also in this game, has got to be troubling. And I'm sure at the end of the season, when John Dorsey and Freddie and and Jimmy and D are talking about uh, the future of the head coach and he's defending himself and talking about why he should come back for the next season – he needs to be able to go in there with a very solid plan and show, hey, guys, I know I wasn't great in situations during the season, but this is what I'm going to do from a concrete standpoint to get better at it so that those mistakes don't pop up again next year. Because he hasn't been able to do it during this season, which was going to give him the best opportunity to come back for next year. But he definitely needs to have, find a way to become better at those in-game decision-making. And I'm not sure what the process looks like. I don't know if there's a, uh, a former head coach out there who can you can sit and do like an off-season program with and they can help you understand like situational football and how to get better at it. Or maybe just to hire somebody that sits up in the booth and all he does is help coach you up and guide you on what is the best decisions and, and when to make those decisions throughout the game. But whatever that looks like, that is an area that definitely needs to improve if the Browns want to be a playoff team next year. I don't year. think that's hard to do. I don't think that's like a, a thing that, you know. Well, that's why it's not, it's not negotiable yeah. as a head coach. That's one thing you have to get from your head coach. Like you have to know football that well. That is like the number one prerequisite for being a head football coach. You have to understand situational football, right? There's a majority of players who have played in the NFL a long time that understand it. You know, now I don't know about any of the players' ability to be able to 
make the right call in situational football, and then also call all the offensive plays and get the offense ready week in and week out, right? Which is why a large majority of head coaches have an offensive coordinator and a D coordinator, and even though they're offensive-minded, their focus in-game is on the situation because that's what you're there for. I'm not saying it's impossible, but for a guy in his first coordinator job to also be having his first head coaching job, that's tough, right? And it's not an indictment on Freddie Kitchens. That's tough for anybody to just walk into. Um, So it's not actually his fault, right? If Freddie, if if they decide that Freddie isn't the guy, which I don't know is the case, it's not Freddie's fault that he wasn't the guy, to be quite honest. Like, it's, it's not his fault. You know what I'm saying? Because we all knew he was a first-time coordinator and a first-time head coach, and I really don't know exactly what was expected. You know, but the fact of the matter is, is, is still, still true. Like you said, yeah. it has to get better. I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of coaches that struggle in that role. I mean, Andy Reid's been criticized for a long time about his in-game decision-making, and when you're a head coach that also has to call the plays on offense, typically the vast majority of your difficult in-game decisions – are happening when your team is on offense. And so to have to be thinking about the plays and to be thinking about managing the game might be too much for Freddie right now. And so maybe having a guy like Steve Wilkes on your staff who's on defense, who's been a head coach before, who probably understands those in-game decisions, being able to lean on him or have him give your input during a game, maybe that's one of the solutions. I I don't know. But um, clearly the way that it's gone this year is not viable in the future. And so to be able to come up with a solution I think is going to be an important part for Freddie if he wants to keep the job for next year to prove to John Dorsey and the Haslam's that, hey, we got this problem solved because it's not going to happen anymore um, because those in-game decisions are things that are unacceptable and they need to get corrected. And moving forward, whatever the answer is, they've got to fix it uh, because right now it's untenable. Do you think a win next week against Cincinnati helps his situation at all? Um, I think it depends on how they win. If it's a real ugly, sloppy win again where the offense doesn't produce much, I think it won't help him because we know that the Bengals stink. They're the worst team in the NFL. And you look at the talent that the Browns have on offense, and you're going to say, all right, whoever our coach is needs to be able to get the most out of our players across the board. And if Freddie's specialty and the reason he got the head coaching job is because of his work with the Browns offense, you want to see that he's getting the most out of those players. And so to go and not score a lot of points and kind of win ugly against the Bengals team, I would say that would be below where the expectations are, which has kind of been the theme, especially on offense for most of the season. And so I don't think it would help him. But I think most of the reports coming out are that the Browns want to keep Freddie for another year because they don't like the idea of giving somebody only one year to perform. And I I tend to agree with that, not necessarily if it's a good idea to keep Freddie after this year or not, but to expect for a coach to be able to turn a, a, an organization and a, a team into the team you want and to build a culture in one year, I don't think is fair. Like I, I lived through Rob Chinzinski getting hired and getting one year and then getting fired. And to me, I thought that was unfair. Like if there was some reason that you believed wholeheartedly that this man was the right man to lead your team, I don't think that changes in a year because you've got to give them enough time to be able to instill your culture, your offense, your defense, your strategy, your plan. And if you don't, give him more than a year, it's really difficult for me to say like, yeah, that was fair. Even though we've seen a lot of issues this season that you didn't foresee from a head coaching standpoint, I still think 
you need to give a coach more than one year. It's really difficult to install what you want to see in the team in only a year. Oh, that's tough, man. That's tough. I feel you, though. But this is a really talented football team. I can, I can tell you this. If they take an L to the Bengals, whew, it is a wrap. I don't give a damn what your philosophy is. They lose to the Bengals, bro. They are they're sitting they're sending Freddie packing. Simple as that. You heard it here first. If they take an L to the Cincinnati Bengals in week 17, Freddie's on the first thing smoking. Yeah, I don't I don't think that's exactly a hot take. Nah, it's because well, I think most people in the country would probably believe and agree with you okay. that uh losing the Bengals after putting together a 6 and 10 season when expectations were 10 and 6 and above would would definitely not surprise anybody if Freddie doesn't come Yeah, back. I'm sick, bro. I mean, my uh, takes but, aren't but the interesting they're not thing, as, they're not full health. They're like yeah. I'm I'm battling through here. Hey, the interesting thing would be uh, if the Browns did keep him around. I mean, it would be really easy. They they keep, it would be really easy to just not say anything, but they keep putting out these reports that he's coming back for another year. We really believe in him. We think he can turn it around. So I don't know what they would be trying to send from a message standpoint by keep putting that out there at this point in the season if they didn't really believe it. So who knows? Yeah. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Well, I mean, it would have to come from Dorsey, right? Like Dorsey hired him. So Dorsey, but like you said, if he believed in him, he still believes in him. Because that honestly, well, I think that's, it, it looks bad on him if he has yeah. to fire him. Yeah, you know. Well, that's exactly right. I think that's a, a big motivating factor, obviously, of why they keep giving the impression that they're going to keep him around. And if they do keep him around, that'll certainly be a big part of it. Is because you know John Dorsey as the general manager, he's made a ton of great moves since he's taken over and remodeled this entire roster and put together one of the most talented rosters in the NFL. But he's also the one that decided Freddie Kitchens should be the head coach. Right. And so for him to admit fault or mistake, that's really hard. I mean, that's one of the hardest things in the NFL, which is just yeah. full of egos and full of people that are, they're the best and the business at what they do in a multi-billion dollar company. I mean, this is like talking about the 32 best CEOs in the world. You're Essentially, you'd be talking about Googles and the Microsofts and the Amazons. These are the top and the best and the brightest in their business. And so for those people to admit mistake is really hard to do. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens uh, in a week from now after the Brown season is officially over and what they decide to do. Especially for a GM who has like your top two decisions to make as in your role as general manager of an NFL team are head coach and quarterback, right? Like you got to get those two right or mm -hmm. you won't make it. Right. At some point, you got to nail those two or it's a wrap. So it becomes the age old question for John Dorsey. Do you stop the bleeding? If you believe he's not the guy, do you say, hey, made a mistake. We're going to make it right. Or do you say, no, I'm going to ride it out because ultimately that could. That could hurt your legacy as well. All right. Well, I feel a lot better now with that therapy. I think my, my temperature has gone down from 122 <laughs> to 108. Um my doctor came mm. and checked on me. She was like, I heard a flat line. I'm like, nah, it's just me calming down. So good episode, <laughs> Joe. We made it through, baby. Well, uh, I'm proud to say that uh, I think we were able to bring you back from the gurney. And uh, you sound great. I can't wait to talk to you again. I think our next episode isn't until next weekend because of the Christmas holiday here coming up in a couple of days. So uh, until then, any final thoughts? Final thoughts. Um Get a flu shot, ladies and gentlemen. It's it's not fake. It's real out here. Your li lives are being stopped 
de- dead halted. People were calling off of work. The flu is real. Get a flu shot for your own safety. That's all I got, Joe. So that's a great question. Not to belabor it, but drink. <laughs> Did you get a flu shot before you got the bird flu? Of course not. I never get a flu shot. Like, I don't have time. I've had bad brakes on my car for like months. The guy told me months ago that I needed new brakes. And I'm like, they still work. They're fine. Right? But that's, I'm like, I'm going to get to it. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get it done. This was two months ago. I'm still riding. Now my, now my brakes are squeaking when I stop. So now I'm the guy in the decent looking car that you can hear coming from two miles away just because I don't have time to do it. So I wanted mm-hmm. to get a flu shot. I just didn't get time. And the flu shot, and the flu, he didn't want to wait on me. He wasn't like, oh, let me get you get the shot first. He's like, no, I'm going to put you on the brink of death. So now I'm like, I definitely don't need to get the flu shot now because I already got the flu. But that's not even the right thinking. I should probably still go get a flu shot. Well, if that's not a great advertisement for getting a flu shot, I don't know what is. So, Hawk, why don't you take us out? Oh, man. Joe Hawk yourself, kids. <laughs>